I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to the 123rd episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I have a famous day for you that had all of the United States and much of the world celebrating. The date is May 21st, 1927, and I'm taking a headline from the Wilmington News Journal out of Wilmington, Ohio. This headline says, Lucky Lindbergh Reaches France. Yes, friends, May 21st, 1927 was the day that Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator, reached Paris, France after his famous transatlantic flight. Now, I chose this day for two reasons. First of all, it was a significant moment, and it was the event that made Charles Lindbergh one of the biggest celebrities of the 20th century, so it's worth covering for that reason. Before I get to the second reason I wanted to cover this topic, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that famous flight. Charles Lindbergh was born in Detroit, Michigan in 1902, and he mostly grew up in Minnesota and Washington, D.C. while his father was a congressman. Even when he was young, Lindbergh had a fascination with flying, but it said that before college, he'd never even been close enough to an airplane to touch one. The love didn't go away, so when he was 20 years old, he dropped out of college and enrolled in a flying school. And since flight school was expensive, he worked as a barnstormer by doing stunt flying. Yeah, he was one of those daring people who would climb out of the airplanes and walk on the wings while it was in the air. He would also parachute from planes. His barnstorming name was Daredevil Lindbergh. But he eventually decided to learn some serious flying and spent a year training with the United States Army Air Service. He graduated first in his class and then became an airmail pilot. Then, when he was 25 years old, Charles Lindbergh's life changed forever. Back in 1919, a hotel executive named Raymond Ortigue announced that he would award $25,000 to the first person who could fly nonstop between New York and Paris. It didn't even have to be a solo flight. The offer was good for five years. Well, five years came and went, and nobody accomplished the challenge. So Mr. Ortigue said he would renew the prize for five more years. By this time, planes were becoming more and more advanced, and a few people thought they might have the skills to actually accomplish the challenge. One man was a flying ace from World War I, but he ended up crashing upon takeoff in New York. Another duo of Navy aviators were killed in Virginia while testing their plane. And then, on May 8th, just weeks before Charles Lindbergh's flight, two French war heroes left an airport in Paris in their seaplane and then disappeared, never to be seen again. But despite all of the other accidents and failures, Charles Lindbergh was determined to be the one who made the flight, and he began to recruit investors. Since his name wasn't well known yet, he struggled to get as much money as other competitors at the time. He bought a monoplane with a single seat and a single engine from the Ryan Aircraft Company and named it the Spirit of St. Louis, since much of his money came from businessmen belonging to the St. Louis Chamber of Commerce. 
Now, Charles Lindbergh knew that if he was going to be successful, he needed to fly with as little weight as possible so he could keep more fuel on board. So, he flew without a radio. He flew without a gas gauge. He flew without night flying lights. He flew without fancy navigation systems. And he flew without a parachute. All to save on the weight. But there was one more thing he knew he couldn't have. The weight of another person. He had to make the trip solo, unlike most of the others who had attempted the flight. When building his plane, Ryan Aircraft also moved the fuel tank to the front of the cockpit because they thought it would be safer if he crashed. But that created a problem. The fuel tank was huge, and with it right in front like that, Lindbergh couldn't see in front of himself. So they had to add a periscope to the airplane. At 7.52 a.m. Eastern Time, on May 20th, Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field in New York. One source said that he was so loaded down with fuel that he barely cleared the power poles at the end of the runway. Then he flew up the Atlantic coast and out over Newfoundland before turning his attention to the ocean. By that time, it was starting to get really dark, and Lindbergh was struggling to stay awake. He said that he was so tired he started flying really low, just a few feet above the water, to make sure he stayed awake and alert. Then he started holding his eyelids open with his hands. And at one point he even started to hallucinate and thought that ghosts were in the cockpit with him. Then around the 24-hour mark, yes, 24 hours in the air without anyone to help him, he started to spot fishing boats below him in the water, and he knew that he must be getting closer to land. Sure enough, by 11 a.m. on May 21st, he'd reached the coast of Ireland. Then, at 3 p.m., he flew past England and was headed to France. I can imagine that this is probably about the point he realized he was going to make it. Word started to get around about where his plane was, and tens of thousands of people headed out to the aerodrome just outside of Paris in hopes of watching him land. And sure enough, at 10.22 p.m. local time, 33 and a half hours after he left New York, Charles Lindbergh came out of the clouds and landed perfectly in the field. He was immediately swarmed by people screaming and celebrating. Everyone wanted to see him and touch him. It took half an hour for the French military and other pilots to get people away from him in his plane, which they were starting to tear apart for souvenirs, and safely into a hangar so he could get some much-needed sleep. Calvin Coolidge was president at the time, and he sent a warship to pick Lindbergh up and bring him back to New York, where he was received by a ticker tape parade and given the Congressional Medal of Honor. Lindbergh was just 25 years old, and his life was never the same again. And yes, I know that he eventually became a Nazi sympathizer, among other things, but we're not going to focus on that today. Now, remember how I said there was a second reason why I wanted to cover this subject today? Well, it's time to explain myself. I wanted to clear up the information about this story that has been taught incorrectly for many, many years. There is a huge part of this story that I, personally, never learned in my school books, and I'd be willing to bet that there's a lot of you that didn't learn it either. Are you ready for this? Charles Lindbergh was not the first person to fly across the Atlantic and live to tell about it. He wasn't even the second person or the third person. There were more than 80 people who made it across before him. 
he wasn't even the first to fly nonstop across the Atlantic. Nor was he the first person to fly from mainland North America to mainland Europe. So, why are we always taught that he was the first to make the transatlantic flight? Well, his fame comes because he was the first to make the flight solo, and his flight broke the nonstop distance record. And while an airship, think Zeppelin, did make a trip from Germany to New Jersey in 1924, Lindbergh's flight from New York to Paris was the first time anyone had done it in an airplane versus an airship. The first men to successfully cross the Atlantic nonstop were John Alcock and Arthur Witten Brown, and they did it eight years before Lindbergh. On June 15, 1919, the pair took off from Newfoundland, Canada, in hopes of winning a prize of 10,000 pounds. The award would go to the first pilot, or pilots, who took off from somewhere in North America and successfully landed less than 72 hours later in Great Britain, or Ireland. Alcock and Brown had both been military pilots and prisoners of war during World War I, and they thought they had what it took to win the prize. So they took off from Newfoundland on June 14, 1919, and were quickly overwhelmed by fog. Then the pair started to freeze. You see, they were flying one of those biplanes with an open cockpit over the ocean in the North Atlantic. It didn't take long for the plane to get completely covered in ice, and more than once, they lost control of the plane, and it started to fall toward the water before they could save it. Another time, the engine stopped working because it was covered in so much ice. They became disoriented, struggled to see the horizon, and had no idea what their exact location was. So, they sang together, drank coffee, ate some sandwiches, and then somehow, 16 or so hours after they took off, Alcock and Brown managed to find land, and they nosedived into a bog. That bog was in Ireland. They'd just made history. They were awarded the prize money by Winston Churchill, who was the British Aviation Secretary of the time, and were knighted by King George V. Sadly, John Alcock passed away that same year when he crashed a plane in France. Arthur Brown continued to fly, even through World War II. So, now that I've talked way more about the main headline of the day than I usually do, I think it's time to hang up our wings and open some more newspapers to see what else was being reported on May 21st, 1927. Today's first additional history story isn't nearly as happy as the main news event of the day. Instead, I'd call it disturbing. With all the sadness and destruction going on around the world these last few weeks, or last couple of months, it might be nice to skip an article like this one. But since it was a huge event that happened just a couple of days before Lindbergh landed in Paris, and was still making headlines all over, and since there have been books written about it, and the event is talked about on its anniversary every year, even though it's been nearly 95 years. I need to tell you about it. I'm taking the main headline for this additional history story from the Blackwell Morning Tribune out of Blackwell, Oklahoma. It says, Stricken Village Buries Its Dead. When I first saw this headline, before I read the story, my mind ran through a series of possible reasons a town would be burying many dead loved ones. I thought of an earthquake, or a flood, 
I thought of a fire, and I thought of a hurricane, but I didn't think of an explosion. An explosion at a school. And while I've talked about explosions on this podcast before, usually from boilers or something like that, this case is far more disturbing than any of those. This story happened in Bath, Michigan. Bath was and is still an unincorporated area in Clinton County. It's about 10 miles northeast of Michigan State Capitol, Lansing. A man named Andrew Philip Kehoe lived in this area. He was born and raised in Michigan and had spent all but a few years of his life there. He was just one of 13 children. He studied electrical engineering at Michigan State College and worked as an electrician for a while, but then returned home to his family farm. In 1912, when Andrew was 40 years old, he married Nellie Price, and a few years later they moved to a farm just outside of Bath. People said that Andrew was dependable, and you could often find him helping out his neighbors and volunteering for different things. So far, everything about the guy seems pretty normal, right? Well, it didn't last. Andrew was also known for being impatient and short-tempered. For example, one day his neighbor's dog crossed into his property, and since he was tired of hearing it bark, he shot the dog. Then, when one of his horses didn't perform just as he wanted it to, Andrew beat it to death. Andrew was also known for being frugal and for not wanting to spend more on something than he thought it was worth. One of the things he hated paying was taxes, especially school taxes. Every year they went up, and it was making it harder and harder to pay his bills. It sounds just like modern times, right? Anyway, Andrew was elected to serve as a trustee on the local school board in 1924, and he served in that position for three years. Then he was chosen to be the treasurer and served for a year in that position. That's when things really started to go south. Any time a decision had to be made about money, Andrew fought it and fought it and fought it. He usually voted opposite of what everyone else on the board was voting, and everyone on the board was struggling because he was so difficult to work with. During this time, Andrew was also appointed to be the town clerk when a temporary position became available. He wanted to keep the job and officially ran for the position when the time came. But the townspeople voted someone else into the office, and Andrew was very angry that they treated him that way. Then, also about this time, Andrew started to fall behind on his mortgage payments for the farm. His neighbor said that he seemed to love tinkering more than he loved farming, and he would spend all his time trying to modify his tractor when his crops were just waiting to be harvested. He was supposed to make payments to his wife's widow to aunt, but when he stopped paying that, the aunt was forced to start working on the paperwork to foreclose on the farm. Then, his wife Nellie got sick with what they thought was tuberculosis, and she was in and out of the hospital. Basically, his life was falling apart. Then came the morning of May 18, 1927. Right at 8.45 a.m., Andrew Kehoe decided to blow up his farm. He detonated firebombs in his house and his barn in all of his farm buildings, making sure that all of his nice things and paperwork would blow up in the explosion too. His neighbors saw the fire and rushed to the farm to try to help. At first, they didn't see anyone, and they tried to get inside the house to look for Andrew and Nellie, but they couldn't find either of them. 
That's when they noticed a pile of dynamite in the corner of the living room. I'm sure the men were confused about what they were witnessing. Andrew had been known to buy large quantities of excess explosives left over from World War I, but he usually used them to help neighbors blow up tree trunks that needed pulled out of the ground, and things like that. But then Andrew suddenly appeared on the property, driving his four truck, and told the neighbors that they should stop worrying about the fire and get to the school instead. By now, you can probably understand where this story is going. It was an exciting day for the school kids in the area because it was the last day of school before summer break. Five years earlier, the township had decided to consolidate all of the little one-room schoolhouses in the area into one big school, and the Bath Consolidated School was built. In 1927, there were just over 300 students that attended the school. As people were driving to the Kehoe farm to see if they could help with the fire, they heard an explosion. A massive explosion. One source said it was heard 10 miles away in Lansing. Andrew Kehoe had been sneaking into the school at night and rigging up explosives in the school's basement. He had everything set on a timer so that the school would explode at exactly 8.45 a.m., the exact same time that everything went off back at his house and farm. The explosion was so big that it lifted the north wing of the school off the ground and then flattened it. People rushed to the school as fast as they could, both those who wanted to help and those who had children attending and wanted to know if they were okay. Many mothers arrived to find their children laid out on the school lawn, no longer alive. Some mothers walked around the rubble and were only able to identify their children from shoes poking out from beneath the piles of debris. It was the most horrible thing anyone there had ever witnessed. The roof of the school had fallen to the ground and was on top of a group of children. One man decided to rush back to his house to get rope so they could pull the roof off the bodies and hopefully find some of the children still alive. On his way, the man passed Andrew Kehoe headed toward the school. He said that Andrew grinned and waved at him as if everything was just normal. When Andrew arrived at the school, he saw the superintendent, a man he didn't get along with, and called him over to his truck. The truck had been filled with nails and metal and explosives and anything Andrew could find that would produce shrapnel. With the superintendent standing near, Andrew fired the gun into his truck, and just like the house in the school, the truck exploded. It sent debris flying everywhere. That blast killed the superintendent, the postmaster, a local farmer, and an eight-year-old boy who had survived the school blast and ran outside where he thought he would be safe. It also killed Andrew himself. Many others were injured. It was the first ever documented case of a suicide car bomber. Rescue operations continued at the school, and luckily dozens were pulled from the rubble still alive, although for many, their injuries were so severe that they were disfigured and scarred for the rest of their lives. And the injuries of so many people was a constant reminder of that horrible day for many, many years. The day after the disaster, Nellie, Andrew's wife, was found in a wheelbarrow in one of the buildings on his farm that he'd burned. It was believed that he'd killed her right after she came home from the hospital a day or two earlier and then put her body where it would burn. And as rescuers were searching the school for more survivors, 
they found something else, a bit of a miracle. Andrew had planted more than 500 additional pounds of dynamite in the school, but something wasn't rigged right and it didn't go off. He had fully intended to kill every person in the school that day. They also found a wooden sign on his farm where everyone would see it that said, Criminals are made, not born. People from all over the world, including school children from all over, sent messages to the town. People came to town to show their support of those grieving. It was said that on Saturday, the day Lindbergh landed in Paris, 100,000 cars passed through, watching as many of the victims were laid to rest. The Bath School Massacre was the deadliest school massacre in the history of the United States. 38 elementary school children were killed, along with six teachers and other adults. 58 others were injured. One woman, Irene Denham, was a senior in school at the time. She's one of the oldest living women in the world and still lives in Michigan. Just a few months ago in December, she turned 114 years old. Irene can still clearly recall the events of that day. She had stayed home from the last day of school because she woke up with a sore throat. When she and her mother heard the explosion, they hurried down to the school to see what was happening. Irene had known Andrew Kehoe and watched as the superintendent, or the principal as she called him and as the earliest articles called him, walked over to Andrew's truck and watched the men converse with each other and then she watched as Andrew ultimately blew it up. She described the aftermath with kids' bodies everywhere and said it was something she cannot forget. Because of the disaster, Irene never received her high school diploma that summer. But the class of 1977, 50 years later, invited the class of 1927 to participate in their graduation ceremonies, wearing robes and all. Now, I'm curious how many of you knew of this story before hearing about it on this podcast. It's not often talked about in areas outside of Michigan. And once Lindbergh landed in France, he became the big news, and the stories about the Michigan disaster quickly disappeared from newspapers. I'm going to post a short video in the Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed Facebook group that includes a lot of pictures from that day and that time. It was actually made by ABC News in Australia, but they did a really good job with it and talked about the other things going on around the world in 1927, like Lucky Lindy. So hop on over to the group and check it out. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Chicago Tribune, printed on May 21st, 1927. The headline is definitely what sold me on this short story. It says, Woman Slayer's Four Kids Are News to the Neighbors. Mrs. Catherine Kassler, who the Tribune called a, quote, obscure and fat Indiana farm lady, was on trial for participating in the murder of William Lindstrom a few months earlier. Mrs. Kassler pleaded her case and insisted that she would, quote, rather die than have my children say their mother is in jail. Those children she spoke of were 16-year-old Edward, 12-year-old Joseph, 9-year-old Roger, and 4-year-old June. She mentioned her kids many times during the trial and how it was affecting them. 
But despite her attempts to be acquitted, Catherine was found guilty, and the jury recommended death by hanging. The judge tried to convince her to admit to the crime and plead guilty before he handed down the sentence, but Catherine refused. So, she was sentenced to hang. No woman had ever hung in Indiana before. Well, the day after the sentence was given, May 21, 1927, some newspapers, like the Tribune, printed even more shocking material. Mrs. Lillian Fraser, Catherine's neighbor, insisted that Catherine wasn't telling the truth about her kids during the trial. Lillian insisted that Catherine's only child was the oldest, Edward, and that all of the other children weren't actually Catherine's. And Lillian went on to clarify that she wasn't just saying that the children were adopted and not biological children, but that they didn't exist at all, and that the children she was using were borrowed. They were nothing more than props. So which person was telling the truth, Catherine or Lillian? Would it make a difference if I told you that William Lindstrom, the person whose murder Catherine was being charged with, was a man Lillian was having an affair with? And Lillian was also charged with being an accessory to the same murder. Friends, this is where the story gets crazy. And I'm going to back up for a minute and tell you a little bit about the history of Lillian and Catherine and how they found themselves on trial in the first place. Lillian had been having an affair with William Lindstrom for four years. They lived together, and she was considered his common-law wife. Except Lillian's real husband didn't even know that they had split up and that she had another man in her life. She claimed that she was working as a nurse in another town, and she would still go visit her real husband every week. Knowing that William Lindstrom had a $7,500 insurance policy, of which Lillian would be the beneficiary, Catherine suggested they kill him and get the money. The pair recruited another known criminal, Lauren Patrick, to help them out. He was supposedly the one that actually did the killing while Catherine waited in the car and Lillian held the murder weapon. Well, when the trio was accused of the murder, Lauren and Lillian decided to avoid the death penalty by pleading guilty and testifying against Catherine. The two women who were once friends were now enemies. And now might be a good time to mention that Catherine wasn't exactly a woman who got caught up in a one-time mistake. Nope. She was a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and would march against alcohol, but then she moonlighted as a bootlegger and would sell homemade brew in Chicago and Indiana on the side. The interesting thing is that although most of the newspapers talked about what would happen to Catherine's four kids if her sentence was carried out, Lillian wasn't the only one to insist that the kids were fictitious. Another neighbor, Mr. Hobbs, said that he clearly remembered seeing Edward around, and that he was a nice boy, but he had never seen anyone else around and would definitely remember if there were small children living at the Castler home. So which was it? Four kids or one kid? I looked on Find a Grave and found Catherine Castler listed there with just one son, Edward. The only child anyone knew about before she started making things up in court. Well, Catherine was sentenced to hang in October, but before then, Lauren Patrick recanted his previous statement and said that she was innocent. The judge didn't believe him, but they did grant her a new trial. That time, neither Lillian nor Lauren would testify against Catherine, 
and on April 20, 1929, she walked out of prison as a free woman. But wait, there's more. While in prison, Catherine's husband, Truman Kastler, started having an affair with a young vaudeville dancer and told Catherine he wanted a divorce. She didn't like that very much, and just 40 days after she got out of prison, the body of her husband's lover was found in a swamp near Catherine's home with a bullet in her heart. All of the evidence pointed toward Catherine, including things she told other people. It seemed that that time she would definitely be found guilty and would go to prison for a much longer time. Except, for some reason, the authorities in Indiana decided they weren't going to prosecute her, and she was never charged with the murder. And unless you think that was the last of Catherine in the news, you would be wrong. Eight years later, a 29-year-old man that was boarding with Catherine fell off a balcony at her home and died. Just a few weeks earlier, she'd taken out a $1,000 insurance policy on him, since she claimed he liked to call her mom, and it confused her. Once again, the authorities didn't charge her with anything. During all of Catherine's major brushes with the law, and especially during her first trial, she was said to giggle and laugh and smile at inappropriate times and made it seem like she really didn't care about anything. She truly thought she was invincible. And maybe she was. For my last additional history story of the day, we're traveling back to the state of Michigan, just like the first story. This story was in almost every paper, right next to the stories of Charles Lindbergh. I'm taking just one of those headlines from the Newcastle News out of Newcastle, Pennsylvania. The headline says, King Ben trial to be resumed on next Thursday. Friends, this case was huge, and at the time, it was considered one of the biggest trials of the century. I could honestly do an entire podcast episode about this, but I'm just going to give you the very, very short basics. First of all, who was King Ben mentioned in the headlines? That would be Benjamin Purnell. He was born in 1861 and eventually married a religious woman in Ohio named Mary, who was about his same age. And this was despite the fact that he was technically still married to a different woman. In 1888, Ben and Mary joined a group of people where one of the preachers insisted that he was the sixth messenger, and that the seventh messenger, as described in the book of Revelation in the Bible, was going to come really soon. Fast forward a few years to 1895, and Ben and Mary Purnell announced that he is the seventh messenger. He called himself the younger brother of Christ, and the angel Gabriel, and many other things. Most people called him King Benjamin, or King Ben. In 1903, Ben and Mary called themselves Israelites, and officially started the House of David in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Within just a few years, they had hundreds of members, and they built a huge colony on a thousand acres. They grew fruit in orchards as well as grain. The group also had their own electricity plant, and they built Shiloh House. It was a two-and-a-half-story Queen Anne-style building made out of cement block. When members joined the church and moved into the colony, they typically signed over all of their money and land and possessions. They believed it would give them rightful passage into heaven when the time came. 
and some of their members were very wealthy, and the church quickly amassed what would be considered tens of millions of dollars in today's money. Of course, there were those who said that the church was a cult, and they could point to many things to prove their point. But many other people thought of the House of David as a fun group. After all, they had three brass bands, two orchestras, a zoo, a garden, an amusement park for people to visit, and other stuff. And to get to the amusement park, they used miniature coal-powered locomotives to transport people from the parking lot to the park. Not only that, they had their own baseball team that was actually pretty good, and they would travel all over North America playing. Now, there were a few things the group couldn't do. First of all, they weren't allowed to cut their hair. So if you look at old pictures of people from the colony and their baseball team, you'll notice long hair and long beards. They also weren't allowed to drink alcohol or have anything to do with tobacco. Oh, and they had to remain celibate. Things were going good for the group until a scandal rocked the community. A group of girls, and the exact number changed depending on which source I read, but there were at least a dozen, came forward and accused King Ben of improper sexual relations. Even though they were supposed to remain as virgins, they claimed he would move his favorite girls into Shiloh House, where he and Mary lived, and at night he would come to them. Some of the girls were as young as 10 years old. He claimed it was an important ritual, but many of the girls and their families left the church, and eventually everything came out in the press. Mary, or Queen Mary as many called her, claimed to know nothing about her husband's nighttime escapades, and she was very upset and jealous and angry about everything. By this point, Benjamin Purnell was in his late 60s, and his health wasn't the best. But despite the many, many witnesses who testified against him and his actions, he was only found guilty of fraud and not for sexual abuse. The fraud was for tricking people into turning their possessions over to the group and not letting them have anything in return when they chose to leave. King Ben's health continued to deteriorate, and on December 19, 1927, just months after his trial ended, and before he could even be sentenced, the Herald Palladium out of Benton Harbor, Michigan, printed this huge headline on their front page. King Ben is dead. Yeah, the House of David leader was gone. The group, believing that Ben would be resurrected, refused to move his body for three days, instead leaving it in the bed where he died. Spoiler alert, he did not rise again, and they did end up burying him. Despite the scandal, the House of David continued to thrive after his death, although it was divided. You see, some of the members followed Queen Mary. They called themselves the New City of David, and some of the followers followed a different man and continued to call themselves the House of David. They didn't think Mary had the right to just take charge of things. The property was divided up, and even today there are still a few members of each group left in the Michigan area living across the street from each other in Benton Harbor. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the news out of Frederick, Maryland, on May 21st, 1927. This advertisement is for something I honestly don't give a lot of thought to these days. 
unless we're going camping and need a lot of extra of this item. I just get it out of my freezer automatically. Yes, friends, this ad is for ice. It says ice, ice, ice with lots of exclamation points. It says that it is pure without any sediments and it doesn't taste or smell like ammonia. The ad also says that it's made from city water, which nowadays would probably be a turnoff for many people since so many like to have specially filtered water. Anyway, the ad goes on to say that there are two kinds of ice, pure ice and ice. It doesn't sound like too much of a difference to me. If you needed ice, there was a list of places where you could get it, including direct from the ice maker, Frederick County Products, whose business was started in 1927. Friends, thanks for listening to today's episode full of crazy and wild stories. Don't forget to check out the Facebook group, subscribe, and write a review if you'd like. And of course, tell your friends about this podcast. I'll be back next Monday with another new full-size episode where I'll tell you about a group of students who started an important movement. Talk to you later.